And so I would invite you, if you have your own copy of God's Word with you, to turn to Job chapter 32. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, you'll find the passage I'm going to read printed in the bulletin. I would invite you to follow along there. Uh, Before we read the Scripture, I just want to ask you and remind you of of where we're at. Uh, We've been reading about a man by the name of Job. We've been reading about his suffering. We've been reading about his friends who believe that his suffering is because there's some unconfessed sin in his life. They've had some hard and harsh things to say at times. We've heard from Job himself. He doesn't understand why the suffering is happening. He's not aware of any unconfessed sin. And his questions, his agony, as the suffering is prolonged, they get more intense too. I want to ask you uh, this morning, before I read, what do you believe about suffering? Uh, Has your understanding of suffering changed in any way as we've gone through the book of Job? As we've considered this narrative of his life, have you found yourself identifying with Job? A man who suffers so much and he doesn't understand Uh, He believes he's been faithful in serving God and doing what is right. Maybe you don't feel that good about yourself that you've been faithful, but maybe you are suffering. And you question and you ask God, why? Maybe you've been through times where God seems to be silent. Or maybe do you identify more with Job's friends? Uh, You're not experiencing the suffering yourself, but you look at others who are suffering And at times, you have said, hmm, they must have done something wrong. There must be something that brought that about. Have you ever been a miserable comforter? It's convicting to read about Job's friends, isn't it? Or maybe you haven't identified with anybody so far. Maybe you don't really identify with Job. Maybe you don't identify with his friends. Well, this morning, we get introduced to a new character. Elihu. Maybe you'll identify with him. Uh, This morning we'll get to know him a little bit. We once again are covering a lot of chapters with just two sermons, so we won't be able to get every detail. But this morning, I want you to begin to get to know Elihu. Uh, Would you stand with me as I read God's Word? Before I pray, let me, uh, before I read, let me pray for us. Father, please uh, help us now as we look at your word. We know that it is, in fact, your word. It comes from you. It has full authority. It is entirely sufficient for what we need. Um, Father, without your help, we won't understand it in that way. We won't be able to apply it to our hearts. So we ask that you would please help us. I pray that you would uh, guard and watch over the words that come out of my mouth the thoughts of my heart, and I pray that you would also watch over all of our hearts, that we would hear what you have to say to us, and that you would use it by your Spirit to change us and make us more and more like Jesus. We ask this in his precious name, and God's people said, amen. From Job chapter 32, uh, the first five verses. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. 
Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Then from chapter 34, verses 35 through 37, Elihu here is speaking. Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say, It is my right before God? That you ask, What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out, They call for help because of the arm of the mighty, but none says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and you are waiting for him. And now, because his anger does not punish, and he does not take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. This is the word of God. Uh, Please be seated. Elihu is a angry young man, isn't he? The question that kept running through my mind as I worked on these chapters was, why? Why is Elihu so angry? At first glance, it seems pretty clear. He believes himself to be wise, and he believes that he has an understanding that far exceeds Job and his friends. He takes offense at what Job or excuse me, offense at the fact that Job's friends have not been able to prove Job wrong. They haven't been able to prove Job guilty of some secret sin that has brought about this terrible suffering. He's also angry with Job because he believes that Job right now is currently sinning against God. Job's questions are unjustifiable. Job's claims to be innocent cannot be true. Elihu is angry. And his silence has not helped him to resolve things. It's just continued to churn, continued to burn. Later on in chapter 32, a few verses down from where we read, he says, I am about to burst 
I can't wait any longer. I have to speak. I need to tell you, I've had a hard time studying these chapters. Uh, As I've wrestled with it over and over again, as I read through the chapters, um, I have to tell you, I found it very difficult to find much good in what Elihu had to say. I've, I've I'm not sure of all the reasons why, but at some point I realized I am reading these verses through the glasses of Job has no good counselors. So all I could see was the negative. I I couldn't get past what I perceived to be Elihu's arrogance and claiming to speak God's words, being perfect in knowledge, declaring that he alone could give Job wisdom. I just couldn't get past that. But as I continued to read, Over and over, as I continued to pray, as I consulted good commentaries, I was reminded of a couple of important things. First of all, God never does condemn Elihu. He does Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad, but God never condemns this man. Not only that, some of the things that God says about himself when he answers Job in chapters 38 through 41, in some of those things, God echoes some of the very things that Elihu says. Not only that, when Job responds to God in chapter 40 and again in chapter 42 and acknowledges his sin and repents, he mentions some of the very same things that Elihu says. Specifically, Job, you need to stop talking. Job, you have uttered words without knowledge. One commentator that I read even made this comparison of Elihu to John the Baptist who prepared the way for the Lord Jesus. Elihu prepares Job to listen to God, and he prepares us to listen to God too. So what we find in Elihu is a man who begins in anger but ends with humility before God. As long as he focuses on men, he's just angry. (laughs) When he focuses more on God, he becomes more humble. I'm really looking forward to next week because that's when we'll see more of the humility. (laughs) But it's important for us to understand the anger first. It's important for us to understand why is it that Elihu has this attitude of anger. And that's the main thing I want to look at this morning. Now, the way I'm going to approach this is different from a typical expository sermon. I really wanted to have this in a nice, neat little package, you know, with a few points you could remember several days from now. I just couldn't get there. So I want to look at this in more of a, if you could picture you and me sitting around a table and we're having a discussion. So join with me, if you would, and let's think about what we can learn about Elihu, about God, and about ourselves. To do that, we have to talk about the elephant in the room, all this anger that Elihu has. Did you notice in those first few verses that I read there in chapter 32, how many times it said that Elihu burned with anger? It's four times in five verses. Anytime the Bible repeats something, it's important. God wants us to pay attention to the anger that this young man has. The Hebrew word for burn means to kindle a fire. Uh, Some of you camp. You know when you're trying to start a fire, 
You don't want to do anything that will hinder it. You do everything you can to get that flame burning. That's what's going on in Elihu's heart. He's not holding anything back. He wants that anger to get big and hot. So we need to talk about anger. I'll say more about this in a few moments, but even now, I, I want to appeal to your heart because I'm convinced more and more that a lot of us struggle with anger. Uh, look around our, our context, our circumstances, the world in which we live. It's not just us. Everybody seems to be more angry, don't they? We had the, the joy and pleasure of being at Kyle and Virginia's wedding last night, and uh, at the reception afterwards, some of us were able to sit around and talk about a number of things, and that was one of the observations that was made. People right now all around us seem to be just, it, it's simmering right under the surface, and it doesn't take very much for it to burst out, does it? There's anger all around. So it's important for us to understand, what is anger? Why does it come? What does God say about anger? Does God care about anger? I believe that He does. In fact, anger is one of the attributes of God. So it's important for us to understand, because it is possible for anger to be good, even to be holy. It's also possible for anger to be bad, even very wicked. Paul reminds us in Ephesians, in your anger, don't sin. We need to consider what anger is. So, um, what is anger? It's an emotion. What's an emotion? An emotion is a bodily response to a judgment that a person makes either about their circumstances or about themselves. Your emotions are not just things that happen to you. Your emotions are your response to a judgment that you have made about whether something is good or bad, whether it's helpful or not helpful, whether it is encouraging to you or discouraging. Let me give you an example. Many people think, and some people actually say, I feel unworthy or I feel inferior. Have you ever thought that? I have. I'm not sure if I've ever actually had the courage to say it out loud, but I've felt it. I've thought it. Guess what? Inferiority isn't a feeling. Unworthiness isn't a feeling. Those are judgments. Those are evaluations. That's a, a declaration of a fact. And it's the, re the reason that I have a feeling of sadness or discouragement is because I have looked at myself, compared myself with some other standard, I fall short, and that makes me feel sad. What I feel is sadness. Inferiority is not what I feel. The emotion that we have is in response to what we believe. So how are you doing this morning? If you had to be honest and say what is in your heart, do you feel happy? Or do you feel sad? Do you feel encouraged or discouraged? Do you feel perhaps even depressed? I want to camp out on this just for a moment because it's important. Some of us feel like, I'm just not a good Christian. or I'm not a good husband. 
or I'm not a good wife, or I'm not a good friend, or I'm not a good son, or not a good daughter. Not a good son is not a feeling. (laughs) You feel sad because you've judged yourself as not a good son, or maybe you would even say a bad son, bad wife, bad husband, bad Christian. Those feelings of sadness and discouragement that are present in your heart are there because of a judgment that you've made. It's important for us to understand our emotions. Can I give you one more example? If you feel unworthy because you've made a judgment in your heart that based on what other people think of you, you have a certain value or not value. The determination of your value is based on what you think other people think of you. And so you're left with feelings, you would say, of unworthiness. That's actually a judgment you've made about yourself. And in that judgment, you've not only made a judgment about yourself, but you've also made a judgment that what other people think of you is more important than what God thinks of you. And guess what? You probably don't know what people really think anyway. What does God think? That's what matters. And we need to understand that as we consider anger. Men, um, before I go on to more specifically about anger, just a, a reminder to you. Men, God doesn't look at your bank account. He looks at whether or not you fear him. Ladies, God doesn't look at your dress size. He looks at whether your heart is gentle and quiet and humble before him. Friends, God doesn't look at whether you always say nice things to each other. God looks at whether you love and care about each other enough so that at times you might be willing even to wound because there's something important that has to be addressed. How do we measure whether or not we're a good friend, a good man, a good woman? What does God say? Now, specifically, anger, because anger is an emotion, too. David Pallison has defined anger in this way. Anger always expresses two things. It identifies something in your world that matters to you, and it proclaims that you believe that something is wrong. Think about that. Anger is based on what you believe to be important and whether or not you believe that something is right or wrong. That's what is behind anger. It's an emotional response to something in your world, something in your circumstances, or even something in yourself. Uh, Sharon and I have uh, friends who also have a a pretty large family. We've not seen them in many years. They live in a town or outside of a town that will remain unnamed, but it's a town east of here where people care very much about the environment. And uh, this family, since they had a large family, they owned a a Suburban. And on multiple occasions, they would come out of the grocery store or another place and find a note under their windshield wipers on their Suburban saying, how dare you drive such a big gas-guzzling thing? Don't you care about the environment? Multiple other things. Why, Why would someone write a note and leave it on a car of someone you don't even know? What's important to me and what I believe to be wrong. That's what's behind anger. 
We can express it in all kinds of ways. Sometimes it's a note on a car. Sometimes it's a, uh, maybe a motion that we make to somebody in another car who has cut us off. Sometimes it is in a raised voice. Sometimes we blow up. Sometimes we clam up. We respond based on what we believe to be important, whether we think it's right or wrong. So the question is, does our judgment about what's important line up with God's judgment? Paulson says this about anger as well. Anger is our God-given capacity to respond to a wrong that we think is important. God also gets angry at things that are wrong in this world. Your capacity to be angry is an expression of the reality that you have been made in God's image. So anger in and of itself isn't wrong. But as with anything else in this created world, even good things can go bad, can't they? Well, we have to ask then, when does anger go wrong? Look at the life of our Lord Jesus. Jesus became angry, but Jesus never sinned, did he? Why did Jesus become angry? Because he was so devoted to represent his father faithfully in every circumstance that whatever was important to his father, that's what Jesus would stand for. He expressed that anger in various ways, but he always did his father's will. And sometimes the people who heard Jesus or saw Jesus, they responded in various ways too, depending on what was important to them, right? Those who thought that they were righteous in and of themselves, how did they respond to Jesus? They were angry with his message. Those who recognized that they needed help from outside of themselves to deal with their sin, they were glad and welcomed Jesus. Some of those people who were angry with Jesus, they just ignored him and went away. Others got together and discussed, how can we kill this guy? Anger can show up in many different ways. In and of itself, it's not sinful. Sometimes we do get angry about the wrong things, don't we? Sometimes we think that something is important that isn't really important. I have heard that in some families... When a cup of milk is spilled at the dinner table, you can expect an outburst from mom or dad about how wrong that is. You'll hear some anger. Not that I've ever done that, but it does happen, doesn't it? In other families, when a cup of milk is spilled, you just go ahead and clean it up. Say, those things happen. What's important in one family may not be important in another family, but the question is not. Which one of those is right? The question is, what is right in God's sight? Are the things that make us angry things that matter to God? Sometimes we get angry about things that are not wrong in themselves. They're good things, but we want them more than we want God. That's another way anger can go wrong. I want to be loved. All of us want to be loved. When we're not loved, if we yell and scream or pout, or give the cold shoulder. Now we're taking a good thing. We're saying that good thing is so important that I can treat other people in a sinful way. That doesn't please God. That's not a right exercise of anger. That is elevating that good thing that I want more than God. It has the only right to say what is most important. 
Sometimes we are angry about the right things, but we can still respond in a wrong way. We need help in dealing with anger. That's the bottom line. So let's look at Elihu and see how he responds. See if we can learn something about anger from him. Again, why am I saying so much about anger? It's because it's in our text, but it's also in our context. It's something that we live in the midst of every day. And perhaps, perhaps this is a time when God's people can show a real difference by how we operate in the world around us when there are so many things that are deserving of an angry response. How will we respond? All right, what about Elihu? Is it okay for him to be angry? Well, if we objectively read the text, I think that we can agree Elihu is, at least on some things, he's angry about things that truly are important. If it is, in fact, true that Job justifies himself rather than God, that's an important thing to be angry about. And Elihu should do something about that. Is it right for Elihu to be angry because Job's friends weren't able to give an answer? No, probably not. You can especially say that as we see the response that Elihu gives. His response is, I can do better. I could make this right. I'm angry because you guys who are older than me did not handle this right. You haven't answered Job. And so throughout chapter 32, Elihu says things along the lines of, hey, I'm young, I waited to speak, now I'm about to burst. But then as he calls out to them to listen to him, he says, I can do better. I have wisdom. I have knowledge. I don't show partiality. I don't flatter. I am offended with you because I can do better. Have you ever taken offense what you see in someone else where you think they just they could have done better and that you absolutely would do better. And because of that, you become angry with them. It can cloud your vision. You end up saying things that are not accurate and are not true. It's certainly that case with Elihu. I'm better. He kind of continues with that thought in the beginning of chapter 33. He says, listen to me. My words are upright. My lips just speak the truth. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Now, he gives a little condescension statement here. I'm, I'm just a man like you. I was pinched from the clay just like you are. But Job, listen to me. I'm the one who has wisdom. I am the one who can judge you. Job I have authority. I can do better. But then as Elihu talks, he begins to turn a corner. He begins to focus more on God. We find that in verses 8 through 12 and following, where Elihu says, Job, what, are you, what you're saying about God is wrong. Now it's not, I'm offended I haven't been answered. I haven't been listened to. Now it's God whose honor is at stake, not Elihu's. 
And so he says, Job, you say you're pure without transgression. You say you're clean. There's no iniquity in you. You say that God counts you as his enemy. Job, you're wrong. That doesn't fit with God's character. It doesn't fit with who God is. Job, why are you arguing with God? Why are you striving, complaining? Why are you quarreling? Don't you know that God has spoken to you? Even in your suffering, Job, God is speaking to you. He is speaking to you to keep you from worse sin. It's not because you've sinned that you're suffering. It's that God would keep you from sin. And of course, in this, Elihu didn't know the full story, did he? Even with that, he was incomplete, but his desire is to have Job think about who God is. And so he gives wise rebukes and good rebukes. But then in chapter 34, he seems to go the other way once again. And he's again angry with Job's friends. He says, why, why couldn't you give answer? Why couldn't you prove Job wrong? Listen to me. Give ear to me. Then you can choose what is right. And then he goes on to describe who God is. And it sounds just like Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad's argument. And the problem with Elihu is that he's focused on men instead of focused on God. And so he once again becomes accusatory, proud, defensive, and he doesn't speak the truth. But then we come to our main text in chapter 35. Now, Elihu, having addressed Job's assumption that he knew God's heart, now he addresses Job's pride. Job's pride that he has shown in insisting that he has a right to demand answers from God. And Elihu says to him, look at the heavens. Job, it's wrong for you to say that you have rights before God, that there's no advantage to living righteously instead of sinning. Job, look at the heavens. Look where God is. Consider who God is. Job, you stand before a holy God. Elihu goes on to say, there are many who cry out to God when they're in trouble. It's not because they want to know God. It's not because they're interested in hearing God's wisdom. They're still proud. God doesn't listen to them because their cry is empty. How much less will he listen to you, Job, when you say you can't see him? When you say that your case is ready and you are waiting for him to show up, Job, the only reason you can speak like this is because God doesn't punish every infraction. You have no sway over him. You talk too much. Job, be quiet. In these words, Elihu is getting closer and closer to the truth. And I think he's actually getting closer and closer to Job's heart. Why would I say that? Well, if, you, if we jump ahead a little bit, if we look and see how Job responds later to God, listen to how similar this sounds to some of the things that Elihu has said to him. First of all, when God addresses Job in chapter 38, God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Echoing the very things that Elihu has said. In chapter 40, when Job first responds to God, Job says this, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? 
I lay my hand on my mouth. In other words, I'm going to stop talking. And then even more clearly in chapter 42, after God has finished speaking to Job, Job says this, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you with my ear, but now my eyes see you. And I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Don't forget how Job was described at the beginning of this narrative. God says he's a blameless and upright man. That does not mean a man without sin. It means a man who, when he is confronted with his sin, does repent, does confess. And we see that when we get to the end of the book. All of this time when Job has despaired, there were times when that despair led him to say too much. He questioned God's goodness. He questioned God's judgment, and he needed to be confronted. And Elihu did that. Did he do it perfectly? No. But he did do that. He confronted Job with what matters before God. And as long as Elihu's judgment lined up with God's judgment, he was a good and faithful friend. He was seeking God's glory. I would even say that his anger at those times became redemptive. It was part of God's rescue of Job to keep Job back from the pit. Job was a man who needed to hear, you've not spoken of God, what is right? I feel like we've run about 100 miles an hour through those chapters, but here's what I want to leave you with. I want you to think about anger. I want you to be willing to be honest about what is in your own heart. Is there anger there? Are there ways in which you believe things are going on that are not right? And those things are important. Would you be willing to take your standard, your understanding of what is right, would you be willing to take that before the Lord and ask Him, Father, what do you say about this? What do you say about my dissatisfaction with what's going on around me? What would you say, Father, about the dissatisfaction I feel about what is in me? What would you say, Father, about what is truly important. Father, would you help me to say the same thing? And if that results in anger because something is wrong, would you be willing to say to your Father in heaven, Father, help me. Help me to know how to address what makes me angry, where I see that there is wrong. Help me to know how to address that, not only honestly, but redemptively. Because remember, anger is a characteristic of God. It's perfect. It's holy. But God, who is angry with our sin, doesn't just stay back. He doesn't just lash out. He doesn't abandon us. He comes to us and He speaks the truth. 
Nowhere could that be seen more clearly than the Lord's Supper. What a reminder this is to us of Jesus going to the cross in our place and bearing the wrath of God for our sin. This is how God exercises his anger. It's in a redemptive way. He rescues people like you and me who are wrong, who have done wrong things, who seek our own glory instead of his. Think about how God's anger was poured out on his innocent son who took our place. Think about your father in heaven who was unwilling to stand by and leave you in your sin. Who chose you in Christ from before the foundation of the world that you might be holy and blameless in his sight. This is what God has desired for people like you and me. So what about me? What about you? What are the things that provoke us to anger? What are the ways in which our world doesn't line up with what we would like it to be? Are you willing to ask God to search your heart? To see where you stand? To see where you are disappointed, where you are frustrated, where there is that burning anger? Are you expressing it in the right way? Is it according to the right standard? Is it about what truly matters? If it's not, don't forget. Forgiveness is found not in doing better, but in confessing. And saying with Job, I'll put my hand on my mouth. I'll be quiet. Father, you say to me what you desire. The more that our thoughts are focused on God, the more we become humble, even in the face of things that would normally make us angry. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, we bow before you and ask that you would please help us. We confess and acknowledge that all of us have issues with anger. Uh, we maybe don't always talk about it. We probably don't always recognize it. But Father, in our hearts, there is a longing for things to be right. We know that comes from you. We're thankful for that. But we pray for your help that that longing we have for things to be right, that it would be found in what you have declared to be right, not just in what we want, not just in what we think. Father, help us to submit to you, to your majesty, to your glory, to your will, to your word, to your truth. And Father, help us to do that gladly. Help us to desire your pleasure more than anything else. Even more, Father, than, than we desire to live another hour on this earth. May it be more important to us that your honor is upheld, that your glory is seen, that your kingdom come and your will be done. So, Father, help us to be people who feel passionately about what is right and what is true. 
And Father, again, we ask, help us to shape our understanding of what is right and true by what you have said. And hold us to that, we pray. And help us in the midst of it, for our failures, for our sin, not to try and fix it ourselves, but to go back again and again to your Son, to confess our sin in whatever form it takes, whatever ways it shows up. Father, help us to take our sin to Jesus always. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.